Orson Welles reported to have said, all you need for an education is Shakespeare and the Bible. In many ways, white Christians in Australia have operated out of something of this mindset, building their faith from scripture and the deposit of faith that came with it when it arrived from Europe. The question is, does a truly Australian theology require listening to and reckoning with another deposit of faith? A wider revelation of God's creating and sustaining work. One which traces the relationship of God to a people to a deeper point in history, even further back than the call of Abram. Put simply, should Christianity, as expressed and explored in this land, be shaped and supported by First People's spirituality and the dreaming? My name is Liam Miller, and in this special episode of Love, Rinse, Repeat, co-presented with Insights, the magazine of the Uniting Church Synod of New South Wales, ACT, I talk with Gary Rorete Deverell about his book, Gondwana Theology, A Trelulwe Man Reflects on Christian Faith. Gary is a Trelulwe man from northern Tasmania, an Anglican of holy orders who has ministered for 25 years and has a PhD in liturgy and philosophical theology. We talk about the material, fleshy nature of First People's spirituality and the building blocks of country, kin, and language. We engage the dreaming and Genesis 1 to talk about the present power of creation narratives to shape the identity of those colonized. We also cover reconciliation, racism, what to preach on Trinity Sunday, navigating a space in the white church, and liturgy. There are very few books that I would put on a need-to-read list for Australian Christians, but this is one of them. As Dr. Terry LeBlanc writes in his endorsement, personal story embedded with pointed inquiry and a spiritual pleading for transformation invites the reader to consider her own way of faith and her own journey toward wholeness. Friends. Please make Gary Rorete Deborah welcome as he joins us on Love Prince Repeat. Well, Gary, welcome to Love Prince Repeat. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, so let's just jump in with a really nice, broad question straight over the plate. Uh, you know, just easy as it goes. What drove you to write? Uh, Gondwana theology? Well, um, I had to be convinced by other people, Liam. Um, Mm -hmm. For a long time, I really didn't believe that there was an audience for a book like this. Um, Probably because of my own experience in the church, I just felt like it was the kind of thing that was way, way down everyone's agenda and therefore there wasn't likely to be an audience. But I have some um, persistent friends who uh, over a number of years said, look, Gary, um, we know there's lots of things swimming around in your head up there um, that you'd kind of like to say. Um, and how do you know there's no audience unless you actually put it out there? <laughs> All of which are very reasonable arguments and can't really be argued with uh, apart from the evidence. So I, I in the end, I, I jotted some things down and uh, for good or ill, it's out there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I thank your persistent friends. Uh, right. Glad they pushed. Uh, so as the subtitle suggests, uh, Chalulwe Man Reflects on Christian Faith, 
uh, there's an element of biography in the work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I should perhaps clarify um, that there's an element of explicit biography, just mm. in case any of the all theology is biography camp uh, are listening in. I yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you you do in this uh, in this book include uh, a lot of your own story, the pains and the joys. Uh, how did you find that process of of putting that on the page and, and including that within your uh, within your insights and an argument? It was um, it was quite a difficult process. It has to be said, um, probably for a couple of reasons. One is that um, whenever you're drawing deep in your own experience, and some of those experiences have been a little bit difficult or traumatic. I'm sure everyone understands this. Um, there's an element in revisiting those things of sort of feeling like you're kind of re-traumatizing yourself and you're going, you're going back to places that you, you really don't want to think about anymore because it just hurts, you know. So um, I think, a, I think a, a big factor in my reluctance to write the book, as it turned out, was revisiting those experiences and, and having to reflect on those again. And I was working with my spiritual director on precisely this conundrum over a couple of years um, to try and get over that hump. Um, but in the end, uh, I feel like getting into that stuff was the only way I could actually start to write the theology because it seemed to me that... Um, where I do agree with the theology as biography camp is that uh, we're all perspectival. We all come from a particular place, a particular experience. And, uh, you know, it's silly to pretend that those things are not there. Um, where, I, where I perhaps depart from the theology as biography camp is uh, saying that that accounts for everything that's going on in theology. Uh, and clearly I don't think that. So. For me, the biographical stuff was a way in and I felt like, um, given what my friends were saying, that it might be a way to reach an audience um, that I was sceptical was there. <laughs> and so I, in the end, I, I decided that I would include those things um, without them becoming the be-all and end-all. And I noticed that uh, Whitford Stock, who published this book in the US, actually listed it under memoir and theology <laughs> rather than just under theology. So that was... <laughs> yeah, you never know what, what, how, once it's out of your hands, the reader takes I know, over. I know, I know, I know. The death of the author. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect example. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start to get into the book uh, and, and its, its content. Uh, so right off the bat, the book uh, brims with knowledge and insight. Um, now, you begin with the word spirituality. That's where we kind of launch mm. into. Uh, and you demonstrate that the deeply material and fleshy nature uh, of First Nations spirituality. Mm. Uh, and you link that with, with Jewish uh, conceptions of the term and the world. Mm. Uh, both these conceptions resist the you know, equation of uh, spirituality with like privileged knowledge or, or, or sort of special experiences. Mm. Um, now, what's interesting is spirituality is a bit of an in vogue uh, term and has been for a little while now, particularly when placed uh, over against religion. Mm. Uh, so I guess how important was it for you to start here? And, and how does your thinking on spirit, spirituality as, as the basic building blocks of Indigenous life, as you explore, mm. Mm. Uh, 
counter both conceptions of first people's um, spirituality held by both kind of the white church and the kind of predominantly white, let's say, spirituality industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how yeah. does it kind of intersect with both of those? Uh, <clears throat> uncomfortably, probably. Um, you, you're quite right, Liam, to say that spirituality is one of the buzzwords of our contemporary world, and um, I'm, I'm reluctant to use it in conversation. Uh, precisely because of that, because the moment you use the word spirituality, everyone thinks that they know what you mean. And you kind of have to work hard to um, ground it in a very specific tradition and experience. And so um, I'm as reluctant as many of the orthodox theologians to even start using the word, you know. However, this is what you call a concession to the audience. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, if, if a book is to have an audience, then you, you have to address these things simply because they're out there in the ether. So, so rather than not use the word, I thought I'd just do a little bit of work at the beginning of the book to situate, you know, this kind of spirituality within the, the cosmos of spiritualities that are out there. Um, so the way for me it intersects, uh, with, with all of that is that, um, I, I want to think very much of spirituality as something which is basically about everyday life. Um, it's not a special dimension of everyday life. It's not a, it's not a, something that interrupts everyday life, uh, if you like, from the outside as some kind of, um, special experience, as I said in the book but it's something which is very much just a descriptor, a a phenomenology, if you like, of everyday life Um, and a reflection upon um, everyday life will yield these kinds of insights. So in a sense, um, I'm claiming that there's nothing special about what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, All I'm doing is reflecting upon my experience, this experience of my community, my people, and I'm trying to explicate that for, for others who are interested in sort of finding out about that. Um, so everything that I say is, 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 is completely and utterly familiar to other Indigenous people. Um, and, <clears throat> and they will say, well, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, I, but I guess there's that wider audience. Um, I'm, and obviously, as a, as, a, as a Christian also, I'm wanting to address that, that, that Christian audience out there. And, of course, there are varieties of Christianity. Um, so I'm wanting to situate uh, my, my understanding of Christianity um, in this very same space of faith basically being about everyday life. Mm. Um, and about the way that we live our lives in bodies, in communities, in environments. Um, And I'm wanting to, you know, rather than concentrate on too many of the differences between these two traditions that I'm drawing on, um, I'm really wanting to point out the commonalities because I think that really when it comes to any kind of conversation that's going to work towards cooperation, understanding, mutual respect. If you focus on the commonalities, then you're more likely to get there than if you focus on the differences. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm coming with that. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, um, this next question actually gets a little bit to some sense of uh, commonality perhaps. So in your discussion on spirituality, you explore the realities of of country, kin and dream. Hmm. Uh, 
in each of these, you touch on their relation to creation. Yeah. So you talk about the way uh, colonization sought to remove first peoples from their dreaming and, and, and from this connection with creation and, and creation narratives and, and so kill the spirit. Hmm. Uh, yet you relate a story in this chapter that attests to the way that dreaming is not just in the past but shapes identity and journey in the present. Mm. Uh, and thus, you know, kind of proving that it, it of itself is, is more powerful than the might of the colonizers. Uh, now, I was wondering about this kind of positive identity-shaping aspect uh, of, of, you know, of this kind of discussion, particularly uh, in relation to kind of the first creation account in Genesis, you know, as an account formed in exile, aimed to kind of shape a community's um, the way they vision God as kind of unchallenged and undefeated despite their own defeat mm. contest and, and shape their identity as oppressed people um, mm. as unabandoned. So I was just, yeah, again, mm. commonality, seeing that there and, and your yeah. Well, um, Liam, um, of, of, of course, what you're saying to me is, um, is right. I mean, I, I think that there is a clear connection between the experience of Indigenous people in this country and also um, colonised peoples down through history, including um, at that particular moment, at least in, in the history of the Jewish people, um, being carted off to exile in Babylon by the colonial power of the time. You know? And so it's very interesting to me that many colonised peoples turn to creation stories to discover a God who is still persevering for them and with them over against the gods of the colonisers, whatever those gods may be. Um, and so my understanding, for example, of the Jewish creation stories um, is that they were created in dialogue with the creation stories of the Babylonians, but they tweaked the creation stories of the Babylonians um, to relativise them <coughs> so that the God who creates the, the world of the Babylonians, its power is reduced <laughs> in favour of the God of the Hebrews who says, well, actually, no, that's not the whole story. There's actually this other thing going on. And that becomes a source of hope uh, for the people who are in, in exile. Similarly, um, I think for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people in this country and also for for colonised peoples all over the world, Indigenous peoples all over the world. I think that uh, our own traditions which talk about um, the fact that we are created in a landscape, that we are descended from ancestral beings who co-created that landscape with, you know, God, if you want to draw it into a sort of Christian discussion as well, um, are consistent witnesses to us and from us to others that the story is not um, finished, that the, the success of colonisation, if you like, is not the end of the story because there's this bigger story which surrounds the smaller story of colonisation, which begins long before, perseveres through, and then also um, says that there's we're headed somewhere else, <laughs> somewhere more positive, somewhere more affirming. Um, and so it seems to me that the dreaming um, stories, the dreaming mythology, the dreaming experience for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is of that nature. Um, 
And therefore, I think it functions similarly to a kind of eschatological trajectory out of Jewish and Christian thinking, which says that, um, that the story of God precedes us and exceeds us. Mm. Uh, and it precedes and exceeds any little story, but, uh, you know, derived from little people who, <coughs> who just want to have <coughs> their moment of power in the sun. Mm. And, uh, it, it's much bigger than that, and that it, therein lies the hope, you know. So mm. there are there are clear connections there, I think. Yeah. 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 Great. Thank you. Your um, second chapter is um, I ran out of margin space with all the uh, exclamation points, asterisks, and and, uh, and notes. I, I really loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now it begins by taking uh, white Australian theology to task for continuing in the strategic forgetting of the genocidal sin and the foundation of the nation. Hmm. Uh, now, this kind of problem is, is in no way a uniquely Australian problem. Um, a lot of my own study and research is on James Cone, who, you know, undergoes this same process in the States, you know, pointing out the ignoring uh, of, of slavery and lynching and, and, and hmm. present injustices. Hmm. Uh, now, your own effort to kind of begin to, to right these wrongs and promote you know, an Australian theology transformed by the grace of God is to propose a rethinking between the relationship of, of dreaming, scripture, revelation. Um, I guess, you know, without giving away the farm, because we want people to go and buy and read the chapter and the whole book, uh, could you just expand a little bit on the path you've taken here? And I guess particularly I'm interested in, in the way that you know, as second peoples and wanting to engage a kind of this fully Australian theology that, that goes beyond just what we got from Europe, hmm. how do we, like, you know, I guess respectfully approach this other deposit of faith, hmm. uh, as, you, as you put it? Yeah. Well, look, um, at one level, Liam, I don't think it's rocket science. Um, I think it's just a, a simple act of respect. So... For second peoples and subsequent peoples who've come to this country, uh, and let's face it, many of them have come running from persecution or um, their own experiences of colonisation, you know. Mm -hmm. e even if we're talking about Irish immigrants or English immigrants who came here um, basically because they were from the wrong class or whatever, you know, um, th there's, a, there's a deposit of history and experience there that I think can become a well of commonality in a respectful conversation with First Nations um, mm. here in Australia. And so it seems to me that simply the simple act of respect in listening to another people's story and actually discovering if you listen hard enough um, that there may actually be huge commonalities um, with your own story and the story of your own people at some point in history. And, you know, the ongoing issues that you face in your own life because of that history. Um, then there's huge, there's a huge reservoir of um, material to work with there. Especially if you then take that, that, that common experience that you discover by sitting with, long, with someone long enough to actually listen um, taking that reservoir and engaging in a conversation with both the dreaming stories of 
Australian Aboriginal people and the Indigenous stories of the Jews, you know, and, and the Christians and the imaginative landscape that they inhabit. So, you know, I'm one of these people who um, thinks that that the concept of analogy continues to be a really fecund sort of concept, that if we can build bridges between our experiences and our traditions and our stories, then we'll actually find ways to move forward um, in very practical on the ground um, ways, you know. Um, so to me, that's, to me, that's pretty simple in terms of the way it's conceptualized. The difficulty is always, um, and this is true within Aboriginal traditions as, as well as in um, second people traditions, there are always demons, if you like, that get in the way or mischievous spirits. And those mischievous spirits, you could understand psychoanalytically as, you know, the, the, the bits of yourself that are resistant to change or resistant to other people or, or whatever. Or you could understand them in terms that the mythologies themselves give us, which is that there are mischievous spirits, there are powers and principalities mm. that want to prevent us from doing these things. And that, um, and that we're our, our, our own worst enemies, you know, th those sorts of things. So there's lots of, there's lots of dreaming stories that are like that, you know. Um, there are lots of Christian and Jewish stories that are like that. And I just think that all of these stories bear witness to the, the stuff within the human experience where we shoot ourselves in the foot and we shoot each other and we get nowhere, you know. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> that's probably the best I can do. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Yeah. Um, that's really, yeah, that's helpful. So we come now in the book to, to reconciliation. Yeah. Now, Gary, I went to public school in the 90s. You know, I, I cut up my share of white and black paper hands and we put them around the classroom. Mm. I, aren't, aren't we good now? Like, we did it. Isn't that surely enough? So uh, I guess but we need to move to, as your chapter does, the, the, the serious questions and, and concerns about mm. affiliation that, that go beyond these. I guess one, one place I wanted to start here is because this was kind of happening recently in Sydney, there were some you know, groups meeting to talk about um, you know, conciliation rather than reconciliation. Mm. Uh, you know, the idea being that there was never a time when there was, a, mm. you know, we weren't ever torn asunder, we just began mm. that. There wasn't a right relationship to be restored. I guess what are your thoughts on, on that kind of terminology either used in complement or comparison to, to yeah, reconciliation? Mm. Um, look, I, I find a lot of the um, argumentation around this a little bit... Um, mm, what's the, I'm looking, I'm searching for the right word here. Um, bit of a red herring um, because I think it... Whether you talk about conciliation or reconciliation, um, we're still we're still talking about a broken relationship, okay? 
Now, whether the broken relationship um, was always a broken relationship or whether it's just a broken relationship now, but it used to be wonderful, at least for three days after, you know, white people arrived or whatever. And, you know, if you read a lot of the colonial histories, they'll tell you that that there was a kind of um, things were okay for a little while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then it sort of went pear-shaped. Um, so whatever you're talking about, the effect, the, the reality is that right now, in the present, the relationship is broken. Mm -hmm. Now, what it, however you account for how it got broken or whether it was always broken seems to me to be a bit irrelevant to the fact that it's broken. Mm -hmm. So what we should be talking about is um, how to heal that brokenness, yeah. you know. Now, obviously, history is important. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not wanting to say it isn't. I wouldn't be claiming that Australia has never come to terms with its foundational sin unless I thought history was important. But what I'm saying is that history isn't everything. Um, unless we deal with stuff now and the fact that we have a broken relationship right now and unless we deal with it in ways which are practical and uh, have to do with real peoples and bodies and communities and the experiences they're having right now rather than about ideas that kind of float above it all in a sort of Gnostic sense, um, then we haven't got there yet, you know. Mm. Um, this is not just about a contest of ideas. This is also a contest of, about bodies, communities, wounds, and we need to deal with those because they're very present. They're, right, they're here right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm. So I guess my second question kind of gets at then the more on the ground thing involving the subject of repair. Uh, so you're right and you're kind of touching on it there. There can be no reconciliation without common ownership of the undeniable truth that happened in this country. And, and this truth, you say, brings responsibility. Mm. And you kind of uh, riff on the story of Jacob and Esau to, to explore this. Mm. Now, at the end of the chapter, you're calling on church leaders to allow and equip Indigenous Christians to order their own affairs, to do Christianity their own way. Mm. Uh, now, certainly this is going to involve, the, you know, giving over of, of resources, uh, of, of, of land, of, of money, uh, you know, that, that have been unfairly acquired uh, mm. through this history. Now... I was thinking about this, like, you know, maybe in, in previous generations, the reason you, someone might be like, this is impossible, uh, is because of how difficult and how far away it was that common truth was. That that was still like so much less in the public discourse. That was the issue. Hmm. My, my wonder is, my, my worry is now that as we're getting maybe somewhat closer to that public truth, common truth, is that is what's the obstacle that kind of is going to come to be is the fear in the church. Um, you know, uh, the broader fear of our diminishing size uh, or of the way we can't upkeep or have to sell old building mm. or our loss of societal influence, reverence mm. and relevance. Mm. So I guess, one, do you see this fear as, as a factor in this conversation? And then I guess I wonder if... If we can get past that, if we can address that, then we actually there emerges an opportunity not only to do the right thing by way of repair, but actually shift our mindset out of one of fear, which is a very non-Christian mm. space to be in, uh, mm. and into one that you know we can get out of this rock we seem somewhat determined to hide under. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, there's no doubt the fear has to be addressed um, because it does seem to me that um, if there is a dominant emotion in the church around a whole range of issues, it's 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 the emotion of fear, and um, and in 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 so far as the church is dominated by fear, I think it's actually somewhat ironically been colonised by the fear that dominates our society as a whole, you know. And it's the fear of the other, it's the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of the unfamiliar or the uncontrollable or, or whatever, you know. So for me, this is one of the mischievous spirits, the, the principalities and powers which screw with us uh, and screw with, um, you know, good outcomes for us all in a genuine commonwealth or or, you know, Basilea Tithiu or whatever you want to call it. So it seems to me that um, we have to address the fear. Um, how you address the fear? It seems to me that um, the only way to address such a fear is simply to reassure people in the same way that Jesus does to his disciples as he heads towards Jerusalem in the Synoptic Gospels that, look, there are tough times ahead and you're going to lose, it, lose everything. You're going to lose everything that you think is valuable. You might even lose yourselves, you know, yeah. the selves that you think you ought to be. But unless you are willing to lose yourselves, unless you are willing to lose everything, unless you do all that, then you genuinely will lose everything, you know. Yeah. The paradox here is if, is is that, because God is for us, because God loves us, because God embraces us, all these things that you lose are not really loss, you know, are not really a loss because you have God. Mm. God has you. What else is there, you know? So it seems to me that there has to be a kind of re-engagement in the church with this deep spirituality of what I call poverty of spirit, you know, or what Johann Baptist Metz called spirit poverty of spirit mm. so we have to get to a point where because we we have this bigger picture of what of what god the creator is doing with us all that we can let go of these little things that we hang on to for dear life like buildings or um power you know our little pocket of power that we defend to the death you know those sorts of things um and, and that's the only way, you know, and, and unless we can let go of those things out of a more common affirmation in the fact that there is a God who loves us and cares for us and embraces us all and wants us to get on with each other and love each other, then we'll never be able to get our eyes off the things that we're afraid of losing, you know. So for me, that is the only way. And unless the church rediscovers that, 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 um, that kind of gospel imperative to lose everything for the sake of the kingdom of God um, in order to gain all things back and therefore become who we truly are called to be, to become the church finally, uh, then we're, we're buggered, you know. So to me, that's the only way through, through this stuff, the only way. Yeah, that's, I love doing these interviews because every now and again, a sermon just breaks out and I get, I get taken to church and it's, that's, yeah, yeah. that's, well, yeah, I am a preacher, so I apologise for that. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, this is one of the times we don't have to apologise because that was powerful <laughs> and necessary. So uh, thank you. 
Uh, well, actually, speaking of preaching, mm. real simple question for you, because the next chapter is, you know, on racism and the Trinity. Mm. So it's really simply like, what am I preaching this Trinity Sunday? What's, mm. what's, mm. what's the word for me? Math mm. problems about, you know, explaining three and one or should I go some, should I go another direction? Uh, yeah, you should definitely avoid math problems um, because, you know, the people who uh, thought about God in these tr- first thought about God in these Trinitarian terms were certainly not mathematicians. Um, yeah, look for me, I've, I've clearly been influenced by a whole range of theologians who've been writing about the Trinity in the sort of um, in the uh, you know 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, um, and applying that sort of understanding of the Trinity to society and church, you know. So going going back as far as um, as Jürgen Moltmann's theology of hope, where he was trying to repair some of Karl Barth's theology around the Trinity, um, in dialogue with Marxists who were very interested in community, you know. So it seems to me that this this insight that basically the Trinity is a model for us of the communitarian vision, where um, differences can also be similarities. Um, So for me, the Trinity is at one level, a metaphor of a metaphor, you know? (laughs) Metaphors are about differences and similarities being held together in tension, in in, in creative tension. And so the Trinity itself is a metaphor of metaphor, as Paul Ricoeur would say. At another level, the Trinity is a model of um, how people can get on with each other, you know? So this this idea of the perichoresis or the dance of God, where you're constantly giving space to another, they can move into your space and you move into someone else's space um, as a kind of model of hospitality, dynamic, fluid hospitality. Um, The idea that in the Trinity there is no hierarchy, but people nevertheless have roles. Um, The fact that there's three rather than one or five says, you know... um, um, power is not monolithic, power is shared, um, but neither is power so diver- so diversified that no one knows what's going on, you know. So you don't have a Hindu pantheon, you have a, a threeness, which means that uh, you can never have someone um, ganging up on another person. There's always a third person to, to mediate, you know. So all of these things have come out of Trinitarian discussion over the last 30 years. And... Um, and it seems to me that if you have a, if you then take all of that material, and you then talk about the experience of racism, to me the problem with racism is no one thinks they're a racist, you know, um, and therefore again it's one of these mischievous spirits that's very much related to fear. The thing about the Trinity um, is that. <laughs> The Trinity for me is, a, is, is the Christian way of telling a story that says that all people are welcome at the banqueting table of the creator, you know. I love that um, icon, that, that uh, Rublev's icon out of the Russian tradition, which um, has the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit seated at the table and there's a space there and the space is for us. And, uh, you know, this is, this is Rublev's reflection upon John 17. 
where Jesus says, you know, the Father and I are one, and if you are in me, then you are one with the Father, you know. Mm. So there's this sort of welcoming um, without fear or favour, very unlike a kitchen cabinet under rudd or whatever, you know. So, So it seems to me that you can think about all this Trinitarian theology very much in terms of racism, it, it, it is a nullification of any kind of impulse towards racism because it says all are welcome, all are valuable, all have their role to play, and indeed not simply here in the world but also in the very being of God. And so these two things are very much related. Yeah, great. Thank you. I've made copious notes. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Bring on Sunday, whatever it is. Um, so... Uh, in the final, I guess, chapter before the, the back half of the book, you're, you shift your audience, I guess you're addressing, um, uh, focusing in uh, is your, your plea to First Nations sisters and brothers, you know, and you're, you're playing with them in one section, which I found really strong, which is you know, not to deny who they are in order to fit the desires of the white church. Mm. Uh, and again, this took my mind to uh, James Cone, who one of the things I love about Cone is where he reconfigures sin, Mm. When he's speaking to his own community, he's kind of saying that sin for us is, you know, refusal to embrace uh, who they are as created and liberated by God. Like, you know, refusal to embrace Mm. humanity. That's what it means to sin. You know, and sin Mm. for the oppressors Mm. is to deny someone else's humanity and thus assume Mm. the role Mm. of God. Mm. Uh, You know, so you write, you know, believing the lie that you don't exist and so denying who you are is no path to salvation but rather the opposite. Mm. after hell and its furies. Mm. I guess how important was it for you to, to end, to build to this chapter? Mm. Uh, and I guess, you know, in your own way, how how have you kind of navigated this, this way in the church of trying to stay free of denial and despair and, and, and hold mm. fast to the way of loving witness to truth? Mm. Well, the short answer, Liam, is um, with great difficulty. I mean... I think one of the things that all of us need to resist in this discussion is is the idea that you know um, that that people from the indigenous and Torres Strait Islander side of this conversation um, are can see more clearly than white people can. You know, <laughs> I just think all of us um, have occasional moments where we see clearly, and but mostly we get so caught up by these mischievous spirits that I'm talking about um, that we we kind of are constantly stumbling over ourselves. And in this chapter, I wanted to, I guess, say, I wanted to say something to my sisters and brothers within the Indigenous community about the stuff that we stumble over, you know. I mean, some some of the stuff everyone knows about and it's, it's kind of historical trauma. And uh, and all and intergenerational trauma and all that, you know, that's all starting to become part of the public discourse now. But I, I think there's also there's also stuff um, which is very much about how we shoot ourselves in the foot in conversation, often with others, um, by either um, denying who we are and di- denying our experience in order to try and fit in with what what is a very powerful sort of push to be a certain kind of Aborigine, a good kind of Aborigine, the kind of Aborigine that we can work with, you know, that kind of stuff. 
or on the other hand, um, just getting so, so angry in conversations that basically all the good stuff that you could provide, um, you're not able to provide because you've actually just turned the gun on yourself and shot yourself, you know. Um, and so it seems to me, you know, that this is, I've been guilty of all these things. Um, I've experienced um, shooting myself in the foot many, many times. Um, and I've also tried to be a good Aborigine um, and found that being a good Aborigine meant that I basically had to become an honorary white person and ended up dealing with years of depression, you know. So, so there's, there's all those kinds of things which I've just learned the hard way, you know. Um, I'm, I'm not a person who kind of had a, some kind of clarity of spirit about this stuff from, from when I was a young bloke and was able to be an example for others um, about this stuff. No, um, I'm a guy who's just messed it up a lot, a lot all the way through, um, hurt myself, hurt others and so on. I've, I've been a contributor to the wounds, wounding both myself and others. So the stuff I say in this chapter is really just trying to be as honest as I can about the journey that, that most of us go through and really trying to dialogue with that stuff in Paul, particularly in Romans, about, you know, the very opposite of the thing that I want to do, I do, you know. And uh, so when I talk about the church and, and, and its many sins, I then want to talk about, well, what is it in us, um, Indigenous brothers and sisters, which is making this difficult as well? And I'm wanting to be clear about that and I'm wanting to address, address my brothers and sisters explicitly out of my own fucked upness, if you like. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. Mm. So the last section of the book, a significant section, uh, is a Christian Eucharist for Gondwana. Uh, which is simply beautiful, and I think where else could have we been led but to, but to prayer and liturgy in this moment? Mm. So, what was it like writing this? Uh, maybe I guess in comparison to the the first half of the book, and, and I guess how did they relate and inform each other in the process? Uh, what was mm. that like for you? Well, look, a lot of that stuff in there is not new material. Um, that stuff I've been sort of putting together um, just in the daily the daily rounds of being a sort of local community uh, minister and priest um, over many years um, in various traditions. Um, and so, um, you know, every week I sort of ask the question, well, there are traditions that come before us, um, but this community is a little bit different um, because of its own uniqueness and its place in the world and its particular history. How do I bring that, that, that rich tradition of spirituality and prayer and theology um, into dialogue with the specificity of this particular community and its pastoral needs right now? And that required, um, as far as I could see, over and over again, basically a tweaking of the tradition towards the pastoral needs that I was dealing with mm -hmm. and the reality of the language and the community and the culture I was dealing with. And that, to me, is just the genius of Christianity. It's translatability, you know, across these various liminal thresholds. So none of this stuff um, emerged just by me thinking about it. 
this stuff emerged because I was engaged in pastoral ministry somewhere. And so I, I felt like I needed to write stuff that was appropriate. I suppose the extra little move um, with this liturgical material was to try and think about particularly um, people like me who are Aboriginal people largely from the southeast of Australia who have that more brutal colonial experience and therefore are working effectively in the franca lingua of um, urban Australian life. And so I was trying to write stuff in a way which um, was accessible for people like that, which on the one hand uses English by and large with a few smatterings of, of language from, from Indigenous communities, but uses English, tries to um, take seriously the fact that uh, we don't live in the bush anymore and yet seeks to evoke... Um, the kind of the, the stories of the dreaming um, and bring those into a discussion with Christianity. So that's really what I was aiming for there, um, just tweaking it in that direction. Clearly, um, I'm, I'm trying to work within a small C Catholic understanding of liturgy. That's where my own tra training is. I'm, I'm sort of a um, part of the sort of ecumenical liturgical reform discussion, you know, and so I'm, I'm situating myself, if you like, at, at the crossroads between all these different sort of conversations and trying to say something to all those people who sit there at those, those crossroads. And um, for me, there's a very clear connection back, particularly to the theology chapter, where I talk a lot about theological language, mm. which for me is also the language of prayer, um, and, uh, you know, how can you appropriately talk of God um, if you're just going to limit yourself to a very narrow understanding? Um, and so expanding the language about God to be inclusive of the history of this country, its experience, its languages, its dreaming stories, um, and setting up a dialogue with um, European traditions seemed to me to be the way to go because, again, it's about finding what's in common, finding a language with which we can talk to each other in a hopeful and respectful manner. Mm. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, so I guess just anything you want to plug, anything that's coming next for you, uh, what we should keep an eye on, how people can you know, stay, stay attuned to your work and movement? Uh, don't really know there, Liam. Um, I, uh, I I just see myself as a very local guy who just mm. gets on with stuff locally. Um, I, um, you know, I don't do any teaching or anything like that. I mean, I'm I'm very happy. I'm very happy um, to to talk to little groups about stuff um, if they ask me to. But you know, I'm I'm not doing a grand book tour or. Um, you know, starting my own YouTube channel or anything <laughs> like that. It's just not my style. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a fairly shy retiring guy most of the time. So <laughs> I try to keep, I try to keep out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, that's wise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I do appreciate the, especially then doing this interview and I do recommend to everyone to go and buy Gondwana Theology uh, 
and review it on whatever site you buy it so that it can you know get up in those metrics it's all very important uh there aren't too many books that I've, when I've, after I've read, I'm like, this is almost a, you know, essential required reading for Australian Christians. And uh, Gary's done you a solid because it's always nice when an essential required reading, it comes in at under 150 pages. You know, we haven't put too much to you here. Uh, but yeah, go buy the book, um, discuss it with your church and your small groups and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Gary. Thank you. Thank you, Liam. I appreciate the plug. And um, yeah. You're on commission. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Gary, we're at Devereux. Thank you so much for being here uh, on Love, Rinse, Repeat, and uh, wish you all the best going forward. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. <laughs>